chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Four Data. I use their website hosting services. And I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcaster listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. I just wanted to let you know that my next course, Six Weeks to Abundance with the Joyful Frugalista, starts the week of the 19th of October. To book in for that, there are limited places. Please go to my website, www.joyfulfrugalista.com. Look for the shop and sign up. I would really love to have you on board. It's such a transformative course that's run over six weeks with Zoom, a Facebook group, and other course materials. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest, Gay Brodman. Welcome, Gay. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, the honour is very much mine. Gay Brodman is very well known within Canberra circles, but for those of you who don't know her, she served as member of the Australian House of Representatives for the seat of Canberra from 2010 until 2019. And then she didn't serve any longer after she decided not to contest the last election. While she was in politics, she served as Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Defence and later Shadow Assistant Minister for Cyber Security and Defence Personnel. Gay now serves on several boards, including the Australian Strategic Policy Institute Council, the Museum of Australian Democracy, which is situated at Old Parliament House, and Endometriosis Australia and the Sapien Cyber Advisory Board. I hope I've got all of that right. Quite a lot of board positions. Gay, welcome. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, really. I invited you on because I heard you speak on a panel during the Canberra Girls Networking event, principally about how COVID has impacted you. And I was really impressed with a lot of the things that you said. Let me start by asking, how has COVID been for you, and I know we're not out of it yet, how have your values changed during this stay-at-home lockdown time? Since the Cabra Gals event, I've got my mum and my sisters and my nieces and nephews and my very best friends are all in Melbourne. And so it's been really tough. One of the reasons I decided not to contest the election last year was because I wanted to spend more time with my family and my friends. I realised that I didn't really know my nieces and nephews and godchildren because I'd spent 10 years focused on the Canberra community and advocating for them at the expense in some way of developing a relationship with my own family, members of my own family and my godchildren. One of the aims was to spend more time in Melbourne and having the freedom to spend more time in Melbourne and to spend with my family and friends. 
It's been really tough for me in many ways, but it has actually made me reflect again on what is important for me. It's made me slow down. It's given me the opportunity to breathe out. And really, I'm going through a transition at the moment into the next phase of my career. It's made me focus much more on what I do value, what is important to me, and in a way, refined, refined, refined my thinking about what I want to do in the future. That opportunity to slow down, to breathe out, to have the time and the space to actually think and reflect, it's underscored what is important to me, and that is very much family and friends, and it's reminded me as to why I chose not to contest the election last year and to pursue a new career. And it's also reminded me how important touch is in life. Mm. One of the things I really miss is the opportunity to actually touch my mum and hug my mum and hug my nieces and nephews and my sisters and my best friends and just my friends here in Canberra. When you go out now and you catch up with them, there's that sort of that weird... That awkwardness. That awkwardness when you first see them. Do, uh, do I do a COVID elbow bump? That's exactly. Yeah. And... Uh, a very touchy person. And so for me, hugging, kissing is is kind of my natural response to greeting people and friends, particularly in family. So that's been very hard, the uh, the lack of touch. And just Zooming my mum, I've now got my mum on Zoom, which I regard as a major achievement because she is not technologically savvy. And she's now Zooming with all her friends and having Zoom drinks and all sorts of things. But she uh, just she got she got really upset on Sunday when we got the news about the fact that the lockdown was going yeah, to be extended, hard. and there was uncertainty about when it would actually lift. Predicated on those figures, she was really really emotional. One of the reasons was because she just wants to be with us rather than see us on Zoom. That's fine, but just wanted to be with us and so and touch us. That's the thing that she's really missing, and that's the thing I'm missing too. The other thing is what one of the great benefits, though, of the COVID period for me has been the fact that I've connected with my community. Having focused on the broader Canberra community <laughs> for a decade, I'm now actually, I've, I've now had a chance to get to know my neighbours. I've had the time, I've had the space, and also we've made an effort in our street to actually keep in touch, to connect, to have events where we're getting together. I now walk with my neighbours once a week. I now have regular lunches with some of the elderly neighbours just to get them out of the house. That's been one of the real pluses is that, that my connection with community. Yeah, community is so important. And I did worry about that in the early stages of COVID. Just to share on the Melbourne link, I have Melbourne family as well. My dad, who's in Melbourne, my 99-year-old nana, who's in an aged care facility on the Mornington Peninsula, and my two aunts, amongst other family, are all down there. We made a road trip down in mid-February and I remember us kind of joking because usually that time it's in the middle of Chinese New Year, it's really hard to get accommodation and we were staying near the casino. We didn't actually go to the casino, we were just staying close to it. I remember Neil and I joking about, oh, this is great, no Chinese tourists, it was an advantage for us because we could get cheap accommodation, never thinking that that would be the last time in months that we could make a road trip. And last time I'd see my dad, my aunts, yes. my nana in, in months. And I don't even know if I'll get to see them before Christmas now. No, I'm the same. I haven't seen my family since Christmas. And I don't know whether I'll get to see them this Christmas. And Chris and I were having everyone up from Melbourne for the first time in, in a decade to Canberra. And so we were very excited about that. And they were very excited about it too. And I don't think it's going to happen. 
Mm, it's, it's hard and there's public health issues. We all understand that. But I do feel for people who are still going through lockdown, particularly in Melbourne, and I hear also the frustration from my father. In the early stages, he was kind of a bit scared and then he was good about it. But now I think just that anger and that, that, that feeling of helplessness. And, well, my mum's on her own, in her own home. I don't know about whether that's the case for your dad. No, he's got his but wife. <laughs> a lot of my, and another girlfriend is down on the morning to Peninsula again on her own, and it's the singles, the people who are on their own that are really doing it tough. At least my sisters and my other friends have got the children and, and husbands and wives and, and, and yeah, they're, they're, they're okay. But mum is on her own, Barbara is on her own, and that's tough. That's yeah, really tough. tough. And it's tough for people too who aren't in stable relationships, you yes. know, for people who mm. are feeling that they're not with a loving spouse at this mm. time. Mm. It's really difficult. Mm. Community involvement, this sounds fabulous. So how did all this happen? Like how can people be more connected with their community at this time? Just reach out. Organise a little event. We did on Anzac Day, we went out and did the, the dawn service and we just stood out the front and we all lit candles and just reflected and remembered at dawn and that was really special and that was in a way one of the first events and then one of our other one of the neighbors has organized a Sunday soiree where everyone (laughs) meets in the street at five o'clock on a Sunday unfortunately I can never make it because that's when I'm linking up with my family in Melbourne Mm. because that's the best time for all of them but they have one of the women, uh, there's a, they're a very musical family and so they play music and they open the window and the music drifts out and people just take a chair and, and sit and catch up for about an hour. It just takes one person in the street to initiate a little activity and people will come on board. People have really embraced it. I mean, I haven't been around to be able to connect with the neighbourhood because I was so, so focused being a member of parliament. But now that I've had that chance, it is really lovely getting to know them all. And they're all so interesting. That's the beauty about Canberra. Mm. That we've got such interesting people with interesting backgrounds doing really interesting things who are really making a difference. It's just been wonderful to learn about their lives too and their contribution. I hear you. We have a lot of academics and retired acad- mm. academics in my area. And actually next door we used to have a professional trumpet player for Anzac Day. She actually played for the dawn service because there was actually a whole network of trumpet players who were doing this kind of, I don't know what you call it, but a kind of a pop-up thing because they couldn't play in large mass events. They were doing it in a small way, which was really quite amazing. Now, I want to talk about your personal experience of losing your job a long time ago now, but back in 1996 where there was considerable restructuring of the Commonwealth Public Service. You were working then at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, is that right? That's right, yes. And uh, it's when the Howe government just came in and they got rid of about 15,000 public service jobs here. 15,000? Yeah, 15,000, and I think it was about 30,000 nationally. It was big mm. and it had a significant impact on Canberra. We had three federal seats here and we went down to two because the population dropped. People just left town. And so it had a significant effect on Canberra's economy, the representation in Parliament. <laughs> And on the psyche of the town for a very long time. It was a tough time. I think still with recovering in a way, I still hear people talking about that mm. time and how harsh it was. Mm. And what were you doing at that time? What kind of work were you doing? I'd just been posted to India. I'd been posted in the January of 1996 and it was a three-year posting. 
And I got the news in the April that my position, my posting from to India had been, the position had been abolished and that I was to be going home in about a month's time. Now, at that stage, we had a, a huge promotion of Australia going on and I'd worked on a similar promotion in Jakarta about two years beforehand. And so they wanted me to stay on just to see that through. And so I stayed on until January for 12 months. But the, yeah, if, if it had not been for that promotion, then I would have been back home on a plane. Now, the, the tragedy about that was the fact that not just the fact that I'd always wanted a posting overseas. And India, I love, adore India, but it takes a bit of getting used to. And Chris and I just <laughs> sort of got over the initial confrontation that is India in terms of just the, the population and the size of it and the chaos of it and the movement and the colour of it. It can be pretty confronting. But once you actually work out that it's just people just going about their normal everyday business, then you actually just get into the groove and we just really loved it. We'd put in that sort of work and we're really loving the time and then we get the call that I'm out and the tragedy was is the fact that was that Chris had resigned his job. He had a job at the Canberra Times. He was an up-and-coming journalist at the Canberra Times and he'd resigned his job only to be told four months after quitting his job that we were on potentially on the next plane home and so that was very, very tough. When we came back to Australia, I was lucky enough to get a position back in DFAT in the area I was working. There were about 50 positions and there were eight of us left standing. Chris came back to no work and Canberra in a, an economic downturn and there was, no, there was no work in journalism. So he was just doing part-time jobs and he did that. It wasn't as if it was just for a few months. He did part-time work for about two or three years before he got fully on his feet in terms of a full-time job. So the impact is significant and not just for the short term, but for quite an extended period of time. It must have been quite difficult. There you were, you're on a high, your yeah. first diplomatic posting. It's all exciting. You've said goodbye to family and friends. You've got on the plane. You're looking forward, uprooted your whole family, husband's quit his job, looking forward to serving for Australia for three years. And then it's all cut short. And then you come back to a whole different landscape as well. Completely different landscape. The morale in the public service was at rock bottom. The morale around Canberra was at rock bottom. It was a really, really tough time. House prices plummeted. People left town. It was a tough time. I can imagine a lot of people are feeling a similar kind of sense at the moment because we're starting to see, obviously, that we're now officially in recession for the first time in nearly 30 years. A lot of people are suddenly being made redundant. Some were in hospitality made redundant earlier than others, but it's a trickle effect. It's still happening and there may even be cuts to the public servants. Mm. Who's, who's to say there's been cuts recently at DFAT? What would you say to people going through this based on your experience? Tough question. It's uh, because every circumstance is so different in terms of you know, the, the level of debt that people are carrying. I mean, at that, at that stage we'd only bought We'd had our house for two years and so we still had a mortgage, a, you know, a significant mortgage. Thinking and, you were going to go on this yeah, exactly, for three exactly. Years. And we'd rented it out to my brother-in-law and his wife. She'd actually been, that had been in a DFAT, a former DFAT house beforehand and they'd come back early from their posting for personal reasons and she said the departing words were, don't come back early. <laughs> and lo and behold, we came back early. And so then you're getting all that stuff out of storage. And anyway, that's, that's another issue. But uh, it, look, it's, it's really tough. It depends on where you are economically, in terms of your age, in terms of uh, 
what you're doing. I, I, I don't have any, any universal advice. Fair enough. And I think sometimes people who are going through it, when people just say, oh, just pivot, you'll be fine, it'll be all work out fine, it can sound almost a bit patronising, can't it? Look, it's deeply confronting losing your job and it is so much of your identity in many ways, but it's not, you know, at the moment things are so tough that it's not just a case of your job, you potentially, there might not be another job. That's the challenge that people are facing. I don't want to paint too bleak a picture, but that, that's, that's, what, that's what we're facing. I've been through many recessions. I tended to graduate from my degrees in recession. I graduated from my arts degree here at the ANU and moved back to Victoria in the early 80s when there was a recession in Melbourne and then I graduated again in the late 80s when the the time of interest rates at 19 yeah, 20 25% hard. when things were tough so I, I I know what it's I've lived through a number of recessions and this is much bigger than them this is a big recession indeed And you touched on earlier that not everyone's financial situation is the same going into this. Some people have more debt than others. And I know you are really passionate about financial literacy. So let's go there. Are we doing enough to talk about money in Australia? And what does this mean particularly for women? I am very passionate about financial literacy. And and it's because it's been hardwired since I was young. My dad left my sisters and my two sisters and my mum when I was 11, and he left us with $30 in the bank because he'd raided the joint account. My teen years were really tough. Mum wasn't working at that stage and she had to go back to work because her own mother was basically a single mum. She worked three jobs herself and uh, just to keep food on the table. Mum grew up in a what's called a housing commission home in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And she did it tough. And so her mum could sort of see this cycle repeating itself. So she was determined she would only work part time uh, because she didn't want to go through what my mum, what she went through as a never younger person. Never mom. seeing Yeah, never seeing her own mum. That meant things were really tough. And there was also no child support agency then. Dad paid maintenance probably about four times every year, but there was no child support agency. So it was tough. And so it really drilled into me that. Yet yeah, you've basically got to take command of, of your own finances so that you don't have a joint account that's being raided. Just going back to that period to teenager, not an ideal time for this sort of stuff to be happening because you have your own personal issues that you're usually confronted with. But also the fact that mum, we were, the lack of money meant that we were eating out every second night at someone else's house, at my family's house or my friends' houses, just so that because mum couldn't afford to feed us every night. And that's uh, tough. That's and really tough. And then you would have heard these stories many a time where the mother does, where the mum's just not eating. She lost a lot of weight during that time through stress and the, the fact that she wasn't eating, so that we could have food and she was on a diet. A lot of people in the 70s were on diets and so she could get, you know, use that cover well. <laughs> it was really tough. It's instilled in me the need to have your financial independence. It's instilled in me the need to actually get an education so that you can actually have that independence. And it's instilled in me that you have to be completely on top of your finances and that a man is not a financial plan, that finance is a feminist issue and that you've got to actually take control of your finances. If mum had been on top of what was going on and had access to the joint account or been paying attention to the joint account, she would have known, she could have seen this pattern of behaviour where savings were being denuded. 
Now, you know, this was the 70s. Life was very different then. It was. But now things have changed. I encourage women to actually grip it up because I remember giving a lecture at uh, the National Library my first term on finance is a feminist issue. It was largely on superannuation, the need for women to grip up their super and, mm. uh, and also to grip up their finances, but particularly to grip up their super. And I had women at the end of it coming up and saying to me, oh, it's all too hard. My head hurts when I read those statements. I really, I, I, thank you for that lecture, but I'm not going to be taking on any of your advice. And you're thinking, really? And then I had these other women coming up who were sort of saying, I gripped up my super, I gripped up my finances, I've now retired and these are women in the sort of late 50s and early 60s and I, 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 I now lead a lovely life. I've got a comfortable retirement. I can travel once a year. I've got you know, a really lovely life as a result of me actually taking command of this. Mm. So the question is, do women actually want to lead the life they want to lead or do they want to be slaves to their finances? Mm. And I th- really do think that if they grip up their own finances, it liberates them. It's not a burden. They should see it as a liberation, not a burden. I hear you. It's so empowering mm. in my own family history. Empowering my, my, is the word. Yeah, it is. It's very empowering. My, my mother is a career woman. She's sort of semi-retired now, but I think she wishes she was still doing things. She's never fully retired. She had money. Like I remember a taxi driver dropping me home once and we lived in a fairly big house at that point. And he said, oh, what does your dad do? And I said, it's not my dad's house, it's my mum's. Yeah. And people don't expect that. And that really struck me that we still have this view that a, a woman marries a man who provides for her. But I never had a mother who did that. And she was a businesswoman and she was very good at what she did. I never grew up with that expectation that I should marry well. It never really occurred to me that there was anything unusual about that. And I'm sort of a bit shocked in a way that people often still think that that is their, their financial plan. I am too. I find it for all that's been achieved through the, the feminist movement, all that's mm. been achieved by women over these years, there's still this kind of 1950s mentality held by some women about who manages the finances, about the fact that it's hard, the fact it's boring that it's too much of a burden. I just find it quite extraordinary. We've achieved so much and they're liberated and empowered in so many different <laughs> ways. And yet when it comes to a bank statement, they completely freak out. I find it bizarre. Yeah, exactly. Usually because it's the women, well, not always, but statistically over three quarters of consumer decisions are made by women. So it's mm. usually the woman who's doing the grocery shopping and making mm. purchase decisions in the house about clothing and about a range of different things, even holidays. Most women get that concept of spending money. They're very good at shopping. So why is it so confronting when it comes to thinking about balancing your spending with your saving and also investing? It's just an extension, really. Shopping for the best deal with other things. Yeah, but they're, they're very good at shopping for the best deal. Yes. And so that's why, but it's not, just, it's not just for the holiday or it's not just for the frock or it's not just for the pair of shoes or a handbag. They really should, as you've pointed out in your book, shop for the best deal on your utilities provider. Yep shop around for the best deal on furniture and shop around for the best deal on a range of things. It's not just handbags and uh, and shoes and frocks <laughs> and holidays where you should be seeking a bargain. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole range of things. Another issue I know that you're really passionate about and it is a bit linked to this is this issue of affordable housing and particularly how women are disadvantaged on that front. This particularly came to the fore when I was a member for Canberra, whenever I did speak about financial literacy and the fact that a man is not a financial plan. 
I'd have women coming up to me at the end of the speeches in tears talking to me about the fact that, and you've heard this story many a time, they were in their 50s, they were on middle incomes between about forty to $60,000 a year, they were divorced, the kids had left home, they were in private rental accommodation and they had very, very little super and they couldn't get a social house because they were earning too much. And so they'd come up to me in tears and just petrified and distressed and distraught about what their their retirement future was going to be looking like. I am worried about homelessness in older women. There was a report done a number of years ago about the potential tsunami of female homelessness in coming years. And so I do think that public policymakers do need to really consider options for social housing. That's not the model that we've seen to date. There's a range of interesting models that are being piloted mm. or there's one-offs around the country, but I think we need to see more of a critical mass in that area in terms of those interesting models being applied to those single women who want a, a sense of community but don't want to be in the paying, living on the pension in their retirement paying a crippling private rental. That is hard then because if you're spending all of your money on private rental, like how can you socialise? How can you eat? Well, how can you eat? But you forget about this. People say, oh, let's catch up. Let's just go out for a coffee or let's just go out for a cafe or let's just go out for dinner. But when you're struggling to pay your bills, like that option isn't available to you, is it? Mm -hmm. And I I, I mean, a coffee, everyone assumes that that's uh, kind of an affordable, cheaper option than the lunch. But for someone who's on a limited income, like my mum, my mum's on the pension, that she just paying $5 for a coffee it's just not something that she thinks about. Come to her house and have a you know a cup of tea with her, <laughs> and and rather than going out for a coffee, people tend to think that's just a normal cheap option. And for some people, it's a lot of people, it's not. I agree, and it's something I think we really need to be mindful of. Yes, that everyone has different financial situations and budgets, and mm. what is cheap for you might not be cheap for someone else. And to understand if they can't afford it, mm. Mm. it's very important. So one last question. Do you have a favourite frugalister tip? And I think you've already given us several gems about the importance of financial literacy. I've got lots of tips. You can share many. One of them is for women to grip up their finances. And I say this because not just because of those women potentially facing homelessness, but like you probably, I've had lots of friends who've gone through divorces and many of them have been stunned about the fact that they've gone to do the settlement and their, their mortgage is bigger than what it was when they actually, mm. when they bought the house because their former husband has remortgaged up to the hilt and they weren't aware of it. Stay on top. Know your joint, what's in the, going on in the joint account. Uh, and I go back to what I learned from my mum. Know what's going on in your super. Know what's going on on your credit card know what's going on in terms of your mortgage and and particularly for super actually go and have a conversation or use the many tools that are out there now to work out what sort of super income you want in your future and then work out how much you need to put in each week or fortnight to actually reach that goal I did it when I went into business I went and spoke to a financial advisor because I didn't know you know you're going from a public service sort of superannuation into nothing and so no co-contribution. And so you actually needed, to, I needed to work out how much I needed to put in as a, as a small business person to reach the goal I wanted. So it's really important to actually work out how much you want and then how much you need to get there. And that you factor in, depending on how old you are, that you factor in 
the various stages of your life when you're on mat leave or if you want to go part-time or if you want variations in your career and times when you're in and out you want you still want the flexibility in life you don't want to be wedded to handcuffed to, to super but that just factors in those those elements and those changes of life so that you can adapt and change in terms of the contribution you make it's amazing how quickly time creeps up on you scary I'm, I'm talking to my financial advisor just recently to to talk about us retiring and to work out the income I mean you know Chris turned 60 this year I'm 56 I'm 57 in November it just goes in a flash and you, you <laughs> all my friends are now retired when did that happen <laughs> and so this is the thing you, it goes so quickly and so that's why you need to be on top of it I've been very clear about what my income will be for super and the path to getting to that. And I had uncertain income for 10 years when I had my own small business, but I've, I've still got, I was amazed when I actually spoke to the financial advisor to say, okay, this is where I'm going to be. Is it tra- tracking to what I planned in uh, 2000? And uh, when I went out into business and he said, yep, you, you get it, you've got the income that you wanted. That's, that's, it's, you've achieved it. Well, that the income that you plan to, because I can't, I can't retire yet. But um, <laughs> it's just a case of just, just understanding it and working out your goals. And I know that this is uh, so many people have said this, but so many people still get into so much trouble. And credit card, get on top of your credit card. I didn't mm. have a credit card for a long time because I was so bad with it in the, my twenties, and that helped me sort of change my habits completely. There was a time actually where I was completely credit card less mm. when I was going through separation and then I knew I was okay and so I went back to having a credit card but the moment I went back to a credit card it was so easy to rack it up. Yeah, yeah, you just on the little purchases and I thought I think for me too before COVID hit we were going into, Chris and I were doing cash, we'd have a weekly budget of cash. Now my, some of my former team members regard cash as dirty and I know this younger generation sort of see it as dirty. And I know that you know, now with COVID, very few people have cash. But I've found that I've really had to keep a check on, on spending as a result of not using cash anymore because of COVID. So that's why your tips in your book about using those various tools to keep an eye on what's going on, keep track of what's spending, is, is really, they're really important tips. Well, thank you so much and congratulations on being on track for your retirement. Even though you are not there yet, you know that when you can, you're completely on track for it. I really appreciate having you here as my guest. If you have enjoyed this podcast as much as I have, please make sure if you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts to leave a review, hopefully a really lovely one, to share it and download it. And thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You've got to accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between So 